0: Uh, Turning in your Bibles to Exodus 25 tonight, Exodus 25, and we're going to get there in just a minute, but I mentioned this on Sunday, we're going we're to start a series on the tabernacle and um, lots of different things about it. So uh, after the Jews escaped from slavery in Egypt, God started to organize their religion a little bit more systematically. And I think this is pretty interesting. And this is another study. And we're not going to do this as part of the tabernacle study, but I'm going to do a study on it uh, not too long after that. Because you think about it, Uh, they did not have really the Bible in any form until after Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Now, there's, you know, if you look in. they, they have study Bibles, and one of them is a chronological study Bible, so th- all the books are in chronological order, not necessarily order that we see them in here. The book of Job was, uh, I don't know when it was written exactly, I didn't look it up recently, but uh, the book of Job was written before all of Ma- uh, Genesis, Exodus, Viticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and so on, but really, what law did they have to follow without the books of the law? And that was not given to them until after they came out of Egypt. So, I mean, we have the history of all of those things. We have the history of, uh, you know, uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of that stuff. But they didn't have the Bible before that. They didn't have all of the law before that. So what did they follow, you know? Um, It's a really interesting study because, um, you know, how did they know what was right? Okay, so take Abraham, for example. How did he know that when God... Was talking to him that that was God that he was supposed to be following when he told him to get up out of the land that he was in and go to another land. How did he know that was God? How did he know that you know? How did he know that that's what he was supposed to do? And how did he know that he was supposed to sacrifice? And how did he know that he was supposed to do these things? They didn't have the written word of God at that point, so that's a that's a really interesting study for a different time. Um, But I say all that to say that they had what was called a theocracy, and that is ruled by God. Um, you know, you've heard, you hear a democracy ruled by the people. You hear of um, an oligarchy, which is a rule by a few. You hear of uh, a, a, a monarchy, which is a rule by a king, and so on. Israel had what was called a theocracy. Theo is the root word for God. And so the theocracy is a rule by God, and that's what they had. Um, under that theocracy, God began to give them things to help them know how he wanted them to live. And, of course, uh, he gave them the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Um, He gave them the ceremony of consecration. He gave them an explanation of more laws. He gave them uh, a a call to observe different feast days and different sacrifices as as part of those feast days. Um, He gave them an explanation of the priesthood. He gave them the regulations for the building of the tabernacle and all its furnishings. Now, think about this. Two chapters of the Bible were written to detail all of creation, including everything in the earth, everything in the sky, everything uh, in the water. Everything, two, two, two chapters, 50 chapters were devoted to the tabernacle, 50, and so in God's plan, obviously it took six days for him to create the heaven and the earth and all this stuff, it took him 40 days to instruct Moses on everything that he wanted him to write down about the tabernacle, 40 days, so six days to create everything and yet 40 days and, you know, countless chapters in the Bible 50 chapters to be exact, to talk about uh, the tabernacle. So 3,400 years ago, the Jews, wandering through the dry sand of the Sinai Peninsula, built a tent to worship God. Why is that significant? Why is that important to us? Why should we care about that? Well, here's the short answer. It's because the tabernacle was a shadow of the Messiah that was to come. There's more to it, but that's the overriding importance of the tabernacle. It was a shadow of the Messiah that was to come. No wonder creation is given little attention in comparison to the tabernacle. This tabernacle was a representation of Jesus Christ, of the Messiah that was going to be coming. Creation only gives glory to God. Christ is the glory of God. And so there's so much more written about the tabernacle than there is about creation or really a lot of topics in the Bible. Uh, But Hebrews chapter 1, you don't need to turn over there, but Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 3 says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. That's talking about Jesus Christ being the express image of God. So Jesus Christ, creation gives glory to God. Jesus is the glory of God. And so of course there's going to be so much more written about it. But then that gives very much more significance to the tabernacle. Uh, Creation is no match for salvation. Uh, the tabernacle, by the way, doesn't have a whole lot of beauty on the outside. In fact, Brother Josh, if you would, put some of those pictures up there. I just want to kind of give you, I mean, these are artist renderings of what the tabernacle would look like, but um, you can see how big everything really was. Those were tents, and I, it just, it's a it's a completely different lifestyle, a completely different way of living than what we can comprehend. We can't comprehend living in a tent where every few days you packed everything that you owned up and carried it to the next place, set everything up, I mean... You get that when you're camping or something like that, but to actually live in that. But you see, of course, this is you know this is the tabernacle at sunset, and this is the pillar of fire that would have, that would be leading them. But Josh, go to the next picture. This is kind of a diagram of the tabernacle, and we'll be referring back to this. I'll show you this as we go through each of the um, each one of the different um, furniture pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. But you see that big square on the top is a, a picture of an American football field. And then that little picture, the little diagram on the bottom, is actually the size of the tabernacle. So it's not big. I mean, sometimes we get the impression that this thing was massive. You know, you think about maybe Solomon's temple or something like that, and you think, this is huge. It's really not that big. I mean, a football field is not that big. And this is maybe a size of about a quarter of a football field. You know, so it's, it's, it would be from like the, the end zone to the 50-yard line and only half of that, you know. Um, so you're not talking about a whole lot of, of space. But then all of these different things, you know, uh, obviously these would be the s- tables for slaughter. This is the brazen altar, the brazen labor. And then you get into uh, the inside where you have the holy place. And Brother Josh, if you would go to the next picture, that is, that's an actual, um, it's not just a picture or a rendering. That is an actual um, replica, I guess you could say, of what the tabernacle would have looked like with the outer court and all of that kind of stuff, and then the inner court, that's the uh, the brazen altar, that's the labor, and then you get into the holy place, um, and Brother Josh, go to the next picture, it's just a little bit more zoomed in picture of the holy place, so you would have had the holy place, and then inside the holy place, you would have had the holy of holies. We're going to talk about each one of these things as we go through it, um, but the tabernacle, just a, a very uh, a very important um, Picture A very important thing for for the Old Testament, but also a very important thing for us today. So uh, speaking of the tabernacle, it doesn't have a display of beauty. I mean, this is not some big ornate thing like you think maybe of Solomon's temple or a palace or something like that. Um, But the beauty actually was on the inside. In fact, Christ said, uh, I mean, Isaiah said about Christ, he hath no form nor comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty in him that we should desire him. That's in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the, is the passage that talks about Jesus Christ as, uh, you know, he was bruised for our transgressions, he was wounded for our, t- our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. But before he moves into all of those things, he talks about the fact that there is no form nor comeliness. Comeliness, it, that word comely means beautiful. There is not... so. In other words, Jesus, and I I don't mean this in in any kind of disrespectful way at all, but Jesus was not some big muscular guy with, you know, this perfectly combed hair and just somebody that everybody was falling down at his feet because he was such a good-looking guy and just a picture of a leader and everything else. The Bible says there was nothing about that. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we see him, there is nothing in him that we should desire him. That's what the Bible says about Jesus. Um, and and that's, I think that's kind of the exactly you know, a picture of the tabernacle as well. So um, this ugly tent has the beauty inside it uh, that really can't be put in words. From the golden candlestick to the golden laver to the, uh, to the golden table of showbread, the golden altar, the, the, the golden Ark of the Covenant. Um, all of those things would have been part of that, and you can't tell that by just looking at this old tent. In fact, it was covered in badger skins. I mean, just rough, nasty looking probably from the outside, uh, but the inside is what held the glory of God, and so kind of the same thing with Jesus Christ. On the outside, there's nothing beautiful about him. There's nothing that, that was there that would make you want to desire him, um, but then the inside is the glory of God, and, and so we're going to see lots of different pictures and things like that. By the way, I don't want to get distracted, but I just saw, um, I just read an article um, that, uh, who was it? She called herself a scholar, and I think she was like University of Harvard or one of these big name universities, you know, um, and she is a, like an antiquities scholar, and the article was pretty funny because basically it, it explained how she got took by uh, somebody who came up with this great forgery of an ancient papyrus. And, they, and she called it, when they first found it and bought it and everything else, Discovery of a Lifetime, because it actually talked about Jesus mentioning my wife in there. Jesus mentioning the phrase, my wife. And so, oh, this, this upends everything that we know about who Jesus was and upends everything about the Bible and all of this stuff. Jesus actually mentioned in this ancient manuscript that was dated back to the time of Christ that he had a wife. Well, it turns out that somebody forged this whole document and made it look old, and they fell for this forgery, you know. Um, and they, they, they were calling it one of the biggest hoaxes of this century as far as, you know, her falling for this thing. Uh, but I just think it's so funny that every time they try to disprove the Bible, they end up getting disproven, you know. Um, but... What's the significance of the tabernacle? That's what I want to discuss with you tonight. Before we move into talking about each of the pieces and elements of the tabernacle, number one, it's to help us better understand the stories that take place in the Old Testament. To help us better understand the stories that take place in the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, before we get before we get any farther in here, I, I want to make sure we go back and read Exodus twenty-five because this is um, um, I skipped over it and I want to look at it. But Exodus chapter twenty-five and verse eight says, "And let them make me a sanctuary." that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. But I think it's so significant what he talks about in verse number eight. Let them make me a sanctuary. God, a dwelling place for God. Let them make, so, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Talk about the importance of this tabernacle. So important, but it helps us to understand the stories that take place in the Old Testament. It's, it's easier to enter their lives. It's easier to think of them as real people if we've spent some time immersed in their world, so to speak. Um, you know, we always think about the Old Testament people as just being stories. And and to a certain extent, that's what they are. But they were real people who lived during a real time. And the more you understand the tabernacle, the more you understand their system of living and why they did what they did. It's easier to understand their choices, whether they were good choices or bad choices. It's easier to understand what those choices represented and just how and why God did exactly with them what he did do. Uh, We have to remember that this was their religious system. The same way, and I I don't mean this in a bad way, but the same way that we judge others based on the New Testament and how we should be living in our relationship with God is the same way, and, and the same way that God judges us based on the New Testament is the same way that God judged them based on how they followed the Old Testament laws. And so, how they reacted and interacted with the tabernacle and all of those things. Understanding the tabernacle gives us great insight into what they did and why they did what they did. So, that's to help us better understand the stories that take place in the Old Testament. But a second reason uh, for the importance of the tabernacle is to help us better understand salvation in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, Turn over to Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to do on a Sunday night, we're we're doing this series on Sunday night, what we believe and why. And one of those, one of these Sunday nights, um, of course, we're talking about angels and we're going to continue with that study on Sunday night. But one of the, um, one of the, one of the topics that I'm going to discuss is salvation in the Old Testament. They didn't have Jesus Christ to wash their sins away. He hadn't died on the cross yet. Now, we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. That's how we're saved. So, how were they saved in the Old Testament? Now, obviously, for them, that revolved around the tabernacle and around that religious system and all of those things. And so, that helps us better understand salvation in the Old Testament and salvation in the New Testament. The New Testament illustrates salvation with references to the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Uh, Why? What did that mean? Um, Let's look at Hebrews chapter 8 and verse number 1. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand. Now, high priest, look, we're in Hebrews, been written well after that time, but he's still talking about a high priest. He's referencing the days of the tabernacle and showing them how that changed in the New Testament and how Jesus Christ is that. By the way, Hebrews chapter 9 is a great chapter to read about uh, Jesus Christ and him as, the, as our high priest and the significance of Jesus Christ with the tabernacle. It really, it really goes back and forth with those pictures. Um, but uh, we have such an high priest, he says, who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have someone also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. So the New Testament is birthed out of the Old Testament. Now, you have to remember this as well. Even though Jesus Christ had come... And even though salvation was by grace through faith, that religious system during the time that Hebrews was written was still in place. They still had all of the, the, they still had the temple, they still had all of the, you know, temples in the different places where the Jews went in and worshiped and sacrificed and everything else. So they would have known exactly what he was talking about and exactly what this picture represented. And as he went on, obviously he said, we don't need the law anymore. The law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, but we have Christ. We don't need to go to the high priest. We have a high priest. And he starts to make all these correlations. And Hebrews really does a lot of work to bring those correlations together and show the picture of this is what the Old Testament was about and the tabernacle and all those things. This is what we have now in the New Testament in Jesus Christ. That's why Hebrews chapter 9 is such a good chapter to kind of explain those things. But that's exactly what he's explaining here in chapter 8. The New Testament is birthed out of the Old Testament. Specifically, the tabernacle is, is repeatedly referenced Uh, In both of the Testaments, by the way, more than 300 times the tabernacle is mentioned, mostly in the Old Testament, but there's still many times in the New Testament uh, that's full of illustrations relating to salvation. And if you don't know or grasp an understanding of the tabernacle, then all of these illustrations and all of these understandings and really the corresponding uh, understanding and appreciation of those things is going to be lost on us if we don't understand what the tabernacle is about. So that's why it's important to study, to help us better understand salvation in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the New Testament, um, the Old Testament lies hidden, but uh, in the Old Testament, I'm sorry, the New Testament lies hidden, but in the New Testament, the Old Testament lies open. And I don't want that to sound confusing, but basically in the Old Testament, they had no idea of the things that were going to be unfolding in the New Testament, and that's why, I mean, even some of that the Bible calls a mystery, we still don't know everything about it, but in the New Testament... The Old Testament is completely open, and we understand that completely, and a lot of that is is through an understanding of the tabernacle. So it's very important that we study that. So it's to help us better understand the stories that take place in the Old Testament. It's to help us better understand salvation in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But the third thing is, because there's truth there. There's truth here. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, the Bible says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Right? All scripture means not just everything in the New Testament, which is what we like to focus on a lot. It means the Old Testament, as part of the Bible, is given there for all of those same reasons. For instruction, for doctrine, for correction, for, um, you know, for reproof, for all of those things. Romans chapter 15 and verse number four. For whatsoever things, get this, were written aforetime, were written for our learning, that we through patience and comforts of the scripture might have hope. So, even the things that were written aforetime, and what is he talking about? It's all those things in the Old Testament. They were written for a specific purpose. So, the Bible is a revelation of God to man. That's not something that you don't know. But, in other words, every part of the Bible tells us something about God and about God's expectation for us. For us to skip major parts of it because we think it's old or because it doesn't apply to us is short-sighted, and quite honestly, it's unscriptural. We are to take the whole Bible. We don't build our doctrinal concept of the church in the Old Testament because the church is a New Testament institution, but we do take the Old Testament as just as much of the word of God as we do the New Testament. And look, we're all guilty of that at some point and in some way. We, we focus more on the New Testament. Well, we are supposed to be following the New Testament? And yes, a lot of those things, you know, I mean, that's why we don't do sacrifices today, right? That's why we don't do all the ceremonial cleansing laws and all of those things, because all of those things were done away with in the New Testament. But so many things that are mentioned in the New Testament, uh, or so many things that are mentioned in the Old Testament are also mentioned in the New. And so it can give us a greater understanding of what we should be doing in the New Testament if we have an understanding of the Old Testament as well. So there's truth there. And as part of the word of God, we should study it and know it and understand it. The last thing is this. Because we love Jesus and we want to know everything about him that we can. Now, we mentioned already that the tabernacle is a picture of the Messiah that was to come. And and once we start getting into these different pieces of furniture and, and the significance of the tabernacle and all the pictures of the tabernacle, you're going to see exactly what I'm talking about. There's so much there. Um, but we see Jesus' earthly life in the Gospels. We see that Jesus, uh, you know, the, we see the life of Jesus lived out in the first Christians in the book of Acts. We see Jesus' purpose and meaning in his death and resurrection in the epistles. We see Jesus' uh, teaching applied practically uh, about how to live in the epistles. We see Jesus coming back as a conquering king in Revelation. But we see him all the way throughout the Old Testament, too. And many people. You know, Christians, many of us, don't see Jesus in the Old Testament. Oh, sure, there's verses about him, you know. Uh, talks in Psalms about the fact that, that not a bone of his would be broken. It talks about, uh, you know, the verse that, that she read about, the, you know, uh, the Prince of Peace and wonderful counsel, all of those things. It talks about the Messiah. And, and there's other passages that talk about him as well, but there's just a few verses here and there that talk about him. But Jesus is actually throughout the entire Old Testament. Um, W.A. Criswell, I I would say that he's probably one of the most influential pastors of the 20th century. He was born in 1909, and he lived until 2002, Um, but he pastored the First Baptist Church of Dallas, and that was, um, I think, he took that church when there was like 8,000 people, and in the course of the time that he was there, he grew it to 26,000 people. Um, That was the largest Southern Baptist Church in the entire world when he was there as the pastor. He was Billy Graham's pastor for a while. Um, He um, graduated from the Dallas Theological Seminary, which is a Southern Baptist Seminary, and he was actually very largely responsible for um, turning the Southern Baptist Convention back in a conservative direction. And he he was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, I think, two different times. Um, And it wasn't too long after he was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention that Adrian Rogers came and took it from him and continued that conservative direction. Uh, King James only, and, and all of those kind of things, and now they're, they're, the Southern Baptist Convention has gone in such a bad direction now that I don't know if there's any hope of even saving it um, if somebody good came in there, possibly, but um, the Southern Baptist Convention is so fractured now because there's a, there is still a conservative faction of that, and then the guy that's leading it now, J.D. Greer, um, has just taken it in a very, very liberal direction. That's um, a side note, but W.A. Criswell wrote, um, he preached a message, and actually the message was like two and a half hours long. He preached it, on, I think, on a Sunday night to his people. You want some more of that, huh, Bill? Preached a message called The Scarlet Thread of Redemption, and they were they actually turned that into a book, and he added a few more things into it when they turned it into a book, but um, he, he basically traced this scarlet thread all the way throughout the entire Bible. And if you go, you can, that book is available online in um, PDF form, so you can read it. It's free, you can find it. I was reading through some of that actually this afternoon, but the Bible is not just simply a collection of interesting stories and, uh, you know, about morality, but. But there's one overarching story about salvation that's found only in Jesus Christ all the way throughout the Bible. And that's exactly what W.A. Criswell did with this book, The Scarlet Thread of Redemption, and kind of traced this all the way back through there, how you can see Jesus in everything. And I didn't come up with this, uh, but but I think this illustrates well the scarlet thread that we see all the way throughout the Old Testament. I don't know who put this together, um, but they did the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's long, so I'm not gonna give you the New Testament as well, but get this. In Genesis, Jesus is the ram at Abraham's altar. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the high priest. In Numbers, he is the cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he's the city of our refuge. In Joshua, he's the scarlet thread out Rahab's window. In Judges, he is our judge. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. In first and second Samuel, he's our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is our reigning king. In Ezra, he is our faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of everything that is broken. In Esther, he is the Mordecai sitting faithful at the gate. In Job, he is our redeemer that ever lives. In Psalms, he is my shepherd, I shall not want. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he is our wisdom. In the Song of Solomon, he is the beautiful bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is the suffering prophet. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, he is the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the wonderful four-faced man. In Daniel, he's the fourth man in the midst of the fiery furnace. In Hosea, he is my love that is forever faithful. In Joel, he is the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. In Amos, he is our burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is our savior. In Jonah, he is the great foreign missionary that takes the word of God into all the world. In Micah, he's the messenger with beautiful feet. In Nahum, he's the avenger. In Habakkuk, he's the watchman that is ever praying for revival. In Zephaniah, he's the Lord mighty to save. In Haggai, he's the restorer of our lost heritage. In Zechariah, he is our fountain. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. And if you go back and look at all of those books, read those books with that in mind, you'll see Jesus, you'll see the Messiah in that book. And that's why... W.A. Criswell started at the beginning and wove that thread all the way throughout all of the books of the Bible to show you that the overarching story of the entire Bible is not just a collection of stories, but it's Jesus Christ as our Redeemer and as our Messiah starting all the way back in Genesis and going all the way through the end of the book of Revelation. It's it's my belief, as I've mentioned to you already, and and the one that I hope you share with me by the time we get to the end of all of this stuff, that, that one of the primary reasons for the tabernacle Uh, And the reason that it was structured with such explicit instructions was to point Israel to the Messiah. We'll see Jesus all the way throughout the tabernacle. We'll see him in its structure, in its furniture. We're going to see him in its materials. We'll see so much in each of these things. And as I mentioned, that just represents the wonderful aspect of what Israel's coming, coming Redeemer would be and do. And there's so much significance to who Jesus is to the furniture and everything that we see in the tabernacle. So essentially, we study the tabernacle in order to know Jesus. Now, next week, we're going to talk a little bit about the difference between the temple and the tabernacle. Many people get those two things confused, and there's a big difference in in exactly what they are and in the way that Jesus Christ is represented in both of those. Uh, So we're going to talk about that, and then we're going to talk a little bit more about the significance of the tabernacle. I'm going to turn it in kind of a little bit different direction than what we did tonight, Not just why should we study it, but what is the significance of the tabernacle. And then after that, we're going to start taking each one of these pieces in the tabernacle and just showing you the picture of each one of these things of who Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was going to be. I think it's going to be an interesting study. I'm looking forward to it. Um, But we'll, we'll talk some more about that when we get together next Wednesday. All right? Let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you for... Uh, such a wonderful book that we have in the Bible. I thank you so much for the fact that Jesus Christ, uh, the whole Bible is written about the fact that he came to save us. And I thank you for allowing us to hear the truth and allowing us to accept the truth of the word of God and to be saved. God, I pray that you would help us as we, as we go through this study, that you just pull out these beautiful truths for us and help us to understand them and see the significance of them and, just, uh, and understand just who Jesus is and get a greater appreciation for the salvation that he gave us. Thank you for all that you do for us. I pray that you give us safety as we go home tonight and bring us back on Sunday morning ready to worship you again. Thank you for what you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.